You've been singing already this morning, so your voices should be well warmed up. So uh, I want you to sing one more time, and it's something that you should know, so sing with me if you would. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy actually quite lovely. Um, uh, who knows what the name of that piece is? Doxology. Doxology is what the name of that piece is. Doxology is a word that comes from two different Greek words, doxa and logia. Doxa means glory. Logia means word or saying or declaration. So a doxology is a word or saying or declaration of the glory of God. And some of the songs that we've been singing this morning already have been doing that very thing, haven't they? We've been singing doxologies all morning. We just finally got around to one that was actually named doxology. Um, when we sing and praise and give glory to God, it is one of the greatest privileges we have as children of God to be able to worship the mighty, awesome God that we've been singing about this morning. And because this is uh, Thanksgiving weekend, I thought it would be good for us this morning to look at a psalm, which is actually a doxology. It's Psalm 100. So if you want to turn to, to Psalm 100 in your Bible um, or on your phone or on your tablet or on your abacus or whatever else you brought with you today. Uh, Psalm 100 is where we want to look, and, and as we look at this, Psalm 100 forms a kind of a doxology, uh, but a very interesting kind of doxology. Now, throughout the Scriptures, we have lots of doxologies. Maybe one of the better known ones is in, Ephes in Ephesians chapter 3 when it says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church. Uh, that's a doxology. That's a declaration of glory to God. Psalm 100 is another one of those. And, and I want us to look at it. It's a very interesting psalm for a couple of reasons. One, it is the capstone to a series of psalms. There, there are several times in the book of Psalms where you have a series of psalms that are linked together either by theme or they're linked together in the worship of Israel. For example, Psalms 120 to 134 are called the songs of ascent. Uh, ascent meaning going up, not ascent meaning I agree with. These are songs of ascent and pilgrims as they would travel to Jerusalem for the three main feast times of the year, which were Passover, First Fruits, and Tabernacles, they would sing Psalms 120 to 134 as they were going up, as they were ascending to Jerusalem. And so those songs are all gathered together because liturgically, for the worship of Israel, they were very important together. 
What we have here in Psalm 100 is kind of the capstone of another one of those series of psalms. And it begins in Psalm 93 and runs all the way through 100. And, and what I would suggest to you, if you think of it in terms of the way we kind of view music today, Psalms 93 through 99 are the verses, and Psalm 100 is the chorus. It's the chorus that kind of gathers up all the ideas that are presented in 93 through 99 and kind of gives them as a summary statement. And, and in, in effect, it becomes not just a chorus, it almost becomes like a hallelujah chorus. And so it's a great, great, great piece of music, and it brings back threads from the other psalms that preceded it. Now, one of the things that makes Psalm 100 interesting uh, to me, it might not be interesting to you, but you're going to have to listen to me talk about it anyway, so you might as well enjoy it. Um, one of the things that makes Psalm 100 interesting is when you study the commentaries, many of the commentators say that Psalm 100 has no structure, that is just kind of wave after wave of praise. And, and the more I looked at Psalm 100, the more I felt like, man, I don't know what those guys are doing because they're dead wrong. This is one of the most highly structured psalms I've been ever, ever able to study because it has three big ideas and all link with this idea of doxology, all link with this idea of giving glory or worship or praise to the God who deserves it. So if we think of it in terms of giving glory to God as worship, here are the elements of the song, and you'll see how they, they, they break out as we go through it together. First comes the call to worship. Second becomes an affirmation of the God who is the object of our worship. And third are the elements of our worship. So Psalms 93 through 99 just build to kind of this crescendo, and then it all lands in Psalm 100 with a call to worship, an affirmation of the God we worship, and then the instruments or elements of our worship. So, so look at it with me. We're, it's only five verses, so it's not going to take all day to get through. Uh, those of you who want to watch football this afternoon, that's okay. Verses 1 and 2 give us the call to worship. Now, a call to worship is not something that is 100% done in every church in the world today, but it's still done in many, many churches. A call to worship is exactly what the title says that it is. It is inviting people to join in in the worship of God. It is an invitation to come and participate in celebrating the glory and worthiness of God. And verses 1 and 2 give us the call to worship. And it has three parts. And again, this is one of the reasons why I kind of scratch my head when I read a commentary that says, well, this is kind of a formless, well, no, it's, it's got great structure. The call to worship has three elements. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Shout, serve, sing. That feels very structured to me. Um, shout joyfully to the Lord. Now, we said that Psalm 100 kind of picks up the threads of 93 to 99. If you'll look over at Psalm 98, verse 4, it says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Bring forth and sing for joy and sing praises. He picks up that idea of shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth and lifts that idea again. Now, I think in the King James Version, and some of you probably have a King James Version, I think 
King James Version, it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, if, if somebody has a King James and wants to nod their head or wave their Bible or something, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it says. Thank you very much. Uh, he didn't wave a Bible, but hi, how are you today? Nice. Okay, there, there went the Bible. Um, make a joyful noise. And, and I, when I was a kid growing up, I always thought that was kind of a weird phrase because what do you do to make a joyful noise? Do you just scream or, 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 or what do you do? One commentary said, don't misunderstand the phrase. This is not God's invitation to the tone deaf to participate. That's not what this is about. This is about a shout of declaration, a shout of affirmation, a shout of celebration. Uh, Darlene Sheck picked up on this idea very well when she wrote, Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing glory and majesty, praise to our King. It begins with a shout. And it's the kind of shout that's referred to when Solomon rose to the throne and replaced his father David. When he went to the throne to become the king of Israel, there was this shout of celebration. Yes, our king is here. Yes, he has taken the throne. Yes, we agree. This is a great thing. Our king has arrived. The reason that's important is because Psalm 2 says a similar kind of shout is going to ring out when Messiah establishes his kingdom on the earth. When Messiah celebrates and establishes his kingdom on the earth, everyone will shout with affirmation, finally, at last, everything's the way it's supposed to be. The king has come. He is in control. He has taken the throne, and we shout with joy because of that. It's a marvelous expression, and that's why we love so much that song that says, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. We celebrate with a shout. And notice, it says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. This is not something that was limited to Israel. This is not something that in our generation is limited to the people of God in the church. This is an invitation to all the world. It's an invitation that anticipates the, the, the invitation of the gospel for all the earth to come to know and celebrate the God who is their king. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Shout to the Lord joyfully. Then he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness then come before him with joyful singing. Now, we're going to talk about the serve part, but in our generation today, when we hear the word worship, we most generally think of the music. We've kind of been conditioned with that because we have worship teams and worship leaders and worship songs and worship this and worship that, and we've kind of been conditioned to think that worship is the music. And, and while music is part of the worship, it's not all the worship. Worship is not limited to music, but it includes music. And when it's the music part of it, notice it says, come before him with joyful singing. The idea of joyful singing is exuberant singing. Exuberant singing. Every now and then, 
I'm not actually speaking on a Sunday morning. It's not often, but occasionally I'm not speaking. And we'll go and we'll get in the back. And it's amazing to me. I'll, st I'll stand there and the singing's going on and people are around me. Kind of like, really? That's all you got? <laughs> we are to sing exuberantly. I don't know if you realize this or not. But you are blessed here with really good musicians. Uh, when Marlene and I were here those years ago before Clint, and, and, and we were here for over a year, we so thoroughly enjoyed the music that was provided and participated in. But listen here, folks. These guys aren't up here to perform. They're here to lead you in giving worship to God through song. That's why they're there. We were in a, Marlene and I were in a church in Singapore in July, and they didn't refer to them as a worship team. They referred to them as worship facilitators. And that's really what they're here for. They're here to help you get your worship on so that you can sing exuberantly. And if you don't, then you're really not fully enter, enter, entering into worship because it's something that we do with our whole heart and it's something that we do unashamed because God deserves it. <laughs> Regardless of whatever, I mean, I might have had the worst week of my life, but that doesn't change the fact that God deserves it. And even if I'm worshiping through my tears, I can still worship him because he's good even if my week's been bad. We come before him with exuberant singing. But that's not all there is to worship. The other part of worship, not only shout and sing, but serve. 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 This brings echoes of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. And the word service there is latrueo, which was a word used specifically to, to, to describe the functions in worship of a priest. And so some translations translate that this is your reasonable act of worship. It's a worship that serves, and it's a service that worships. And the implication of that and the idea is that as we serve our God, if we are doing it from a right heart, every act of service we do is an act of worship to God. And every act of worship we do becomes an act of service to God. Because worship and service are linked together. And the key element to it is serve the Lord with gladness. <laughs> with gladness. It, it, it shouldn't be a drudgery. It shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be just another obligation that I've got to check off my list this week. It should be something that comes out of the same exuberant heart that produces our singing. It should come out of the same exuberant heart that acknowledges the glory of God and wants to worship him this way. And so whether it's shoveling the sidewalks, which we saw a thing on the slides about earlier, or whether it's cleaning the toilets, 
or whether it's being a worship facilitator or whether it's taking a meal to a friend who's hurting. If it's done with gladness, it becomes an offering to the Lord and an expression of worship. And that makes it all the more enriched because ultimately, no matter who horizontally may benefit from it, vertically it's for him. And he deserves it because he's worthy. And he gets the glory. And that makes it a doxology. See, So the call to worship, shout, serve, and sing. And now, who is it that's the object of our worship? And once again, for the non-structured, I don't get it because once again, there are three pieces. There are three elements to, to the to the one who is the object of our worship. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. First of all, know that the Lord himself is God. And by implication, no one else is. Okay? The Lord himself is God and no one else is. And there are two things about this that are so important. One is to understand the singularity of our triune God. Steve Green used to sing, God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its highest praise for God and God alone. Why? Because he is God himself and he alone. When Elijah was commissioned by God to call the nation back to Jehovah. Elijah's very name was an announcement of that mission because Elijah is a combination of Elohim and Yahweh. Jehovah is God is what Elijah means. <laughs> Jehovah is God. And that was what the whole battle of Mount Carmel was about because on Mount Carmel what's going on is this. The people have been following Baal. And Elijah gets up there and he says, here's the deal, folks. If Baal be God, serve him. If Jehovah is God, serve him. But you can't have it both ways because only one of them could be God. And I'm here to tell you that Jehovah is God. Full stop. Jehovah is God. Know that the Lord himself is God, parenthesis, and no one else is. And maybe the key word there is the word no. Because it's really hard to worship God if you don't know him. Not only do we need to know some things about him, we need to know him. We need to enter into relationship with him. And that's where the other stuff in this description of the God we worship comes in. Know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. How do we know he's God? We know he's God because we see the evidence of everything that he's made. I mean, that's Romans 1, right? Romans 1 is all about we see the invisible God by means of the visible things that he has made. We know that he is God because he has brought all things into being, and that includes us. He has made us. He has created us. And oh, by the way, he created us 
to be in relationship with Him. And that relationship is described in the third part. We are His people. He is our God. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now, now all of this is going somewhere. All of this is going somewhere. Because we see Him as our Creator, as our Maker, as the one who, Psalm 139 says, formed us in the secret places of the womb and wove us together like his handiwork. It is he who has made us, but he has made us for relationship. And that's why Jesus could say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. Why? Because we are his people and the sheep, the flock of his pasture. Now, where all of this comes together is when Jesus also says in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it was that act of sacrifice on the cross, on our behalf, that made it possible for the relationship with God that we had broken to be made whole again. For us, as John 1 says, to be those who have the authority to be called children of God. How do we have that authority? Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because the shepherd became a lamb to rescue the sheep and bring them back to the Father. And all of this ultimately finds its culmination in Revelation 4 and 5. And we don't have time to turn there, but... This afternoon, I would encourage you to read Revelation chapters 4 and 5 because what you see there is the scene at the throne of God. The scene at the throne of God. And in Revelation chapter 4, God is worshipped and celebrated and praised for his act of creation. And in Revelation 5, Jesus the Lamb is worshiped and celebrated and praised for his act of redemption. Creation and salvation, creation and salvation. How do we know that God has made us? How do we know that God himself is the only God? Because he created and because he rescued and brought us into relationship with himself. And that's why God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. That's why everything should reserve its highest praise for God and God alone because he has made us and he has redeemed us. That's who he is and that's what he's done. So we sing and we shout and we serve this God of creation and redemption and then he tells us how it all happens in, in verses 4 and 5. It begins, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Those expressions don't mean very much to us. I mean, it sounds kind of like religious blah, blah, blah. You know, it sounds like just poetry. It doesn't sound like it means anything. But to the people of ancient Israel, to the people of first century Israel, these would have been extraordinarily important ideas because the gates... And the courts referred to the area of first the tabernacle and then the temple. 
First the tabernacle and then the temple. The gates were what allowed you in and the courts were where you participated in the worship of God. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with praise. What is he saying? What he's saying is this. We have access to God. We are welcomed into his presence. We come before him. As, as, as Hebrews says, boldly coming before the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus gave us access to God by faith. And so we come into his gates. And we come into his courts. But for ancient Israel, unless you were the high priest, that was as far as you got to go. You could get into the courts. You could come in through the gates. You couldn't go any further. Only once a year with blood could the high priest enter into the holiest of all, which represented God's presence among the people. But we are given full and complete access to our God. When Jesus was hanging on the cross on our behalf, and he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. The Bible tells us that the veil of the temple that held off the holiest of all from access, that kept entrance unavailable, that veil was torn in two. So that through Jesus' sacrifice, through Jesus' victory, through Jesus' salvation, we can now not only enter his gates, we can not only enter his courts, we can enter his presence with our praise and with our worship and with our prayers. We are invited into the presence of the creator of the universe. And when we come, here's what we do. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And that's not just for a certain Thursday in November or the weekend following it. That's for every day. That's for every day. I mean, if we believe what we say, which I'm not sure we always do, but we need to. If we believe what we say, that God is good all the time, all the time God is good, then all the time God is deserving of thanks and blessing. There's never a moment that he does not deserve to be praised. There is never a moment that he does not deserve to be thanked. Listen, in Romans 1, when Paul describes the downward spiral of the human race, he says the turn began downward. When they would not acknowledge him as God, neither were they thankful. The absence of a thankful heart is an indicator of deep spiritual crisis in a person's life. We come and we give thanks and we bless his name. We declare his worthiness. We honor him. We rejoice in him. We celebrate him. And we give thanks to him. October 12th, 1973 was the day that I came to know Christ as my personal Savior. I was a freshman at Liberty. 
only it wasn't called Liberty then, it was called Lynchburg Baptist College. Their third entering class, there were about 400 or 450 students. Now there's like 15 gazillion or something. It's changed a little since then. <laughs> um, but when I came to Christ, one of the guys in my dorm started discipling me. Now, now to, to be totally transparent with you, I had no idea that's what was happening. But that's what he was doing. And he was using all kinds of things. And one of the things he used, because he knew that it would resonate with me, was music. And he introduced me to Andre Crouch. And one of the first songs he introduced me to describes perfectly the heart that Psalm 100 is calling for. Because it says, how can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved. Yet you give to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. And by the way, just so that we keep that service piece joined in there, he says, just let me live my life, dear Lord. May it be pleasing unto thee. And should I gain any praise, let it go to Calvary. That's a doxology, folks. That's a declaration and affirmation of the glory of the redeeming, rescuing God who made us for relationship with him and who restored us to relationship with him so that we can say to God be the glory for the things he has done. And then it closes. Why do we do all this? What motivates it? For the Lord is good. When, when I was a kid, I was one of seven children. And uh, every night at dinner, our parents trained us to join hands. And we would recite together. And some of you know this, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. By his hands our souls are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. And then we would eat whatever it was. Growing up going to Sunday school and hearing Bible stories and hearing and seeing all these things, I had a pretty good idea that God was great. But it was only after I came to faith and came to know him and walk with him over a season of life that I began to understand that he was also good. And not only did I come to find out that God is great and that God is good, you know what else I found out? God is greater and God is better than I thought. And so we worship him and we give him glory for the Lord is good his mercy 
is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. There are some people in our world that if they were listening to all this, they would think that we are the biggest knuckleheads in the history of the human race. They would say, do you ever watch the news? Do you see what a train wreck this world is? Do you see how fully and completely we're working at going off the rails? Do you understand? And, and, and my response to him is, I get it. I understand that this is a world of tears and pain and heartache and grief and sorrow and loss and struggle. I understand that. I understand that. But I also understand that God's good and that God's faithful. And in a world filled with tears, when we direct our attention to the book of Lamentations, a book of lamentations, a book of tears and sorrow and grief and loss and struggle and pain, in the midst of all of that honest human experience of brokenness, we're reminded that in the midst of it all, God hasn't changed. That in the midst of it all, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And that's why we can worship. And that's why we can praise. And that's why we can celebrate. And that's why we can shout and sing and serve. Why? Because he's good, because his mercy endures, and because his faithfulness abides. And that's where we plant our flag. That's where we make our stand. We don't make our stand in the rightness of this world or the justice of this world or the equity of this world because none of that exists. We plant our flag in the faithfulness of God. we say through our tears to God be the glory great things he has done because he is even greater and better than we think so let's finish like we began Praise God from whom all blessing flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise As you know, that amen does not mean the song is over. That amen means I agree. I agree. God is good all the time.
all the time. God is good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your greatness and your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness and your provision. Thank you that one day we will stand before your throne and worship you as the one who made us and the one who rescued us. And Father, I pray that in every day we would seek intentionally to discover your fresh mercies. And every day search for reasons to give thanks even in the midst of a broken world. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.